Welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. The podcast where we mix a sometimes weird but always delicious cocktail of theology, philosophy, and spirituality. Welcome everyone. In this episode of A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar, we're really excited to be talking with someone who has actually been pretty formative in my own theology over the last several years since I got to meet her about five or six years ago at a conference, and that is Dr. Cheryl Bridges-Johns, who is the recently full professor, the Robert E. Fisher Chair of Spiritual Renewal at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary in Tennessee. Cleveland, uh, Tennessee. Cleveland, Tennessee, yeah. The the other Cleveland, I guess. And she's just wonderful. She's awesome. Uh, It's a really fantastic conversation, so you're, you're all in for a treat. Fun times. But we are at a bar, so let's open something up and sip and talk about it. Maybe we're going to hate it. Maybe we're going to love it. But Was that part of the, was it in Acts when they thought they were drunk on wine and they were actually drunk in the spirit? Yeah. My my reaction to that was always, why not both? I have no comment. In the spirit of that, why not both? Let's. uh, Yeah. So today we're drinking uh, what many of you probably are very familiar with and probably what many of you are unfamiliar with. I hadn't encountered this whiskey until probably two years ago, but it's Michter's Small Batch Unblended American Whiskey. Now, all those words matter, but really, Michter's is a really, really good whiskey. It's a, I mean, I'm giving away that I love this stuff, but it surprised me. The first time I had it was this little danky dive bar in a, you know, half rural, half suburban bar. Amazing. Like, that description right there just needs more, but I'm not going to give it. <laughs> but I had, a, I had a sip of this and was blown away. So, Michter's American Whiskey. Oh, that nose. Mm. That's that's cherries and... Like strong cherry. Yeah. Like you just opened a jar of cherries. Oh, that is so good, that nose. I haven't got past that yet. I did read a couple of reviews of this, and they were raving about the nose mm. being like really intense and like, I don't know. It's not intense, though. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's delicious. Yeah. And it's not like you take a big breath and inhale through your nose, and you don't get burned. Which yeah. I mean, I think it's a forty-one percent alcohol, so it's lower cut. Yeah, it's not. It's not rough at all. Really easy drinking. Yeah, love it. Goodness. The cherry continues all the way through. It tastes like oak barrels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the weird thing about this this whiskey is that the you can kind of read into the marketing like they don't want to tell you what it is. It's kind of a mystery that people debate about on the internet apparently, but like. You know that it's, uh, well, they call it unblended, which just means they don't cut it with a neutral spirit, but it's definitely a blend of different barrels, right? Probably different ages. But you don't know anything about the barrels other than that they used to have bourbon in them. Maybe they're the mystics of the whiskey world. Yeah, I don't know. They're definitely working some spiritual magic with this, because this is fantastic. (laughs) There's like no age statement. You know they they have a really amazing aging program, so you know they have old stuff that they could put in it if they wanted to. They have Mm -hmm. bottles that are 20 and 25 years old. So, I mean, I, I suspect this... This tastes older than it probably is. And good grief. I'm curious what kind of magic they're... I like this there. better than I remembered. I mean, this... It's good. I'm catching a hint of allspice, uh, like just a touch allspice. of like the anise. Mm. Like, there's those real dark kind of yeah, like... I get, I get that. I mean, it's just so luscious. I mean, I have to yeah, use like steel words. much more expensive than it is. Rich, luscious. Mm-hmm. How much is a bottle like this? Maybe $37, $40, I was going to say like 40, 45 50 I, I think, well, maybe because people know about it now. It might be more difficult to find. But if you were to find it at like a, you know, big box liquor store or something, I would expect it to be about 40 bucks. 
About the same as their bourbon, I think. Yeah, forty-five fifty, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The internet's telling us it's worth it. I mean, that's really nice. I read that it had a short finish, but I'm not getting that at all. I think it lingers. Mm. This is pretty straightforward. Yeah. But I love what it brings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're the first one who's tasting it for the first time, Elliot. What are your? It uh, it tastes really like the the smoothness is there. I tend to like a sharper, like mm. a higher mm. proof. Uh, but. For this being what it is, I, I appreciate it. There's a lot of flavor. It doesn't. It sometimes stuff that's lower proof can feel weak, and this doesn't. It's not like that. Yeah. There's yeah, plenty I mean, of flavor to go around. Totally. If you're in a bar or a restaurant and you see Michter's and you're like, "Oh, a pastor and a philosopher walked into a bar, talked about this. I'm going to order it. Ask for it neat first. Try yeah, it for sure. Because you don't. I don't think you want to cut this. And if you do, go ahead afterwards. But man, this is perfect the way. Yeah, it I is. wouldn't. I, I wouldn't even really want to mix this to be honest. Although it would make a pretty kick-ass old-fashioned, I bet, with the cherry forward. Oh, I was going to say Manhattan, like that, like you're already getting right in those flavors with the vermouth cherries. Like it's, mm. I mean, now for me, for that. I want to make one. <laughs> for me, I can't put anything in here. Not ice, yeah. not water, not it's bitters good. or anything. I don't, I want just this. This is what I want. He's yeah, not even weird. using a glass. He's just drinking from the bottle. What a purist. <laughs> <laughs> Am not. <laughs> awesome. Well, Michter's highly recommended. Well, Dr. Cheryl Bridges-Johns, thank you so much for joining us. We're super excited to share you with our listeners. Cheryl, could you just tell us a little bit about your background? You have a very interesting background in academic at a Pentecostal university. It's just fascinating. So just tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, I'm a fourth generation, what they call classical Pentecostal. My great-grandmother received the baptism of the Holy Spirit as we call it, in 1907, shortly after the Azusa Street Revival. And Hmm. she uh, became one of those shouting Methodists and eventually asked to leave her Methodist church. (laughs) And so she began, started a church there that many, many decades later, I grew up in that church. And so I I come from a tradition that sort of had that matriarchal origin and freedom for women. So as a young girl... I think I was in one of the safest places I could have been in the 50s and 60s where, you know, the elders would say, we sense God's hand on your life and we want you to speak or we want you to preach. And those things, as I found out later, are are rare. Mm. And you didn't know that that was rare at that time. Oh, yeah, especially at that time. So I um, sensed a call to ministry, not quite sure what it was, maybe missions, you know, in the Pentecostal tradition, women have historically been sort of ghettoized in the prophetic, the evangelist or church planter and uh, missionary. It's sort of this prophet-priest dichotomy that we have. Hmm. And so I thought, well, of all those little options, I guess, so in, in spite of that freedom, there really, I didn't see myself as a pastor necessarily because I didn't see many women pastors, women preachers, but not in women missionaries, but not women pastors. And uh, so I thought I would be a missionary and went to college at Emmanuel College in Georgia and then Lee University in uh, Tennessee. Uh, I met my husband at Lee and two weeks after we got married in December of 74, we went to Wheaton grad school in January of 75, and we got a master's in leadership there and taught at a Bible college for three years in North Dakota, 
which was just a really great growing experience. And you teach everything under the sun. And if they ever saw, if the dean ever saw anything on your transcript, you ended up teaching it the next semester, whether <laughs> you knew anything about it or not. Um, but it was good. It was a wonderful place to be. And after that, we went back to school to the um, a PhD program in religious education at the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. But I have to clarify to people that that was the Southern Baptist Seminary before the uh, conservative takeover. And mm-hmm. at that time, they were somewhat welcoming to my husband and myself. And it was a good experience there as well. And been teaching at the Church of God Seminary, or what we call Pentecostal Theological Seminary, for 33, 34 years now. And I just went uh, to the senior professor level, which is one course a semester, no faculty meetings, no student advising. Congratulations. Um, It's just great. And so I'm I'm enjoying that time of my life. I'm, I'm wanting to get a couple of more books out and spend more time hiking and playing with my grandkids before I get too old and can't do it. And my husband and I, we also planted a church and pastored that church for 27 years. So we went kind of burning the candle at both ends for a long, long time. So this is a, a new season of life and uh, I'm enjoying it. I, you know, did a lot of ecumenical work through my journey and tried to represent my tradition to people who might not know a thing about it. And hmm. sometimes I felt like I was first contact and <laughs> just trying to help certain people groups understand certain religious traditions, who we are. And yeah. I've enjoyed, for the most part, I've enjoyed that, that, <laughs> that, that uh, vocation and calling. We, uh, we have a little farm and we have two wonderful daughters and five, uh, grandchildren and two great son-in-laws. Nice. Yeah, I was just about to ask you. You're the first Pentecostal we've had on the podcast, other than uh, myself. First uh, contact again. Yeah, here <laughs> okay. we go. So, well, um, for how, for any of our listeners, pretty well, I'm sure. Well, I don't know. I'm a bit of an unusual Pentecostal. I'm also a philosopher, which makes me very skeptical I mean, of a lot of things. <laughs> I know you, so I call BS on you. Yeah, Randy yourself. doesn't even think yeah, I am. Yeah, Pentecostal. well, like Jamie Smith says, you can think in tongues, right? Well, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so would you mind, if it's all right, just introducing Pentecostalism to our listeners, especially people who might have had only negative or, um, I don't know, experienced it only through prosperity gospel or something like that? How how do you understand what Pentecostalism means? Yeah, it's a, it's a movement that has sought to recapture some of the essence of what we would have called primitive Christianity as part of the whole restoration movements that were popular, big in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It's a movement that has its sort of primal, uh, I mean, there were bursts of this movement around the world at the turn of the 20th century, but the ground zero, the primal faith that we call the, the what Harvey Cox would call the well of the movement, is the Azusa Street Revival there with William Seymour in uh, Los Angeles in 1906. It's a movement that is, for me, one that is historically been a very liberating movement among the, the uh, margins of society around the world. It's majority 
the majority world is Pentecostal in the sense that I think one in every 12 people on the planet now identifies as Pentecostal. Hmm. I mean, they can be a Lutheran in Ethiopia, but they're Pentecostal. They're Roman Catholic in uh, Brazil, but they're Pentecostal. So it's, it's now become... It's now become one of the largest movements, Christian movements in the world. And even, it's, I still get shocked, you know, with that in terms of even saying that there are people who, who might just see a prosperity preacher or Apollo White or someone like that and say, well, that's mm-hmm. what this movement is. But the average Pentecostal doesn't look like Paula White. She is um, of a, a woman of color. She probably lives in a mega city in the majority world. That's who the average one of us is. Mm-hmm. Cheryl, in looking at the majority of the American church, I would say this is a this is just off the top of my head, but I I would say a majority of the American church isn't Pentecostal. Don't embrace the gifts of the Spirit, as we would say, as charismatics. And I, as someone who loved the gifts of the Spirit, and a pastor who um, loves releasing people into prophetic giftings and whatever those gifts of the Spirit look like, as you encounter, you've traveled across the nation, around the world, different church movements, different universities. What do you think the, the church is missing when they stiff arm the, the gifts of the Spirit or when they don't believe in them, when they don't maybe believe in them but don't pursue them? What is your, your observation on what those churches and followers of Christ might be missing? Well, I, some of those concerns are legitimate, that they don't want to be the crazy, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of that out there. So they may say, as a friend of mine who's a United Methodist pastor would say to me, you know, I want this, the Holy Spirit, but I don't want it with all the craziness. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, our movement, because we are a populist type of movement, we do attract the crazies. And I've always said that if I had to choose between being with the crazies and and being with people who were just as crazy but knew how to hide it, you know, sort of the middle-class, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant people, I would choose the, the former. Uh, so, yeah, we can get kind of messy sometimes. And, you know, Protestant faith uh, coming out of the Reformation has been pretty much a rational, mm-hmm. non-experiential form of religion, almost uh, disembodied in some ways. It's mm. almost anti-sacramental in that sense. So it uh, has a fear of anything that would uh, be seen as irrational. And, you know, what we, my husband and I have tried to say to those folk is, but there's not a dichotomy there, rational versus irrational, but there is the transrational. Explain that. The transrational, I think, incorporates reason, but then goes beyond it into uh, the deep mystery, mysterium of Christ, and that Paul so eloquently refers to. And we are initiated as Christians, baptized into that mystery. So we cannot know, but we do know, and we see, but we can't see. Uh, And in that transrational, I do think that there's, uh, room for all the hard sciences and uh, physics and metaphysics. And it's, uh, I think that's where science is going today anyway, in a lot of ways. 
that we take these leaps, these creative leaps, and I believe that we can have a synergy with the Spirit. Our mind can be in synergy with the Spirit. And I think we were talking about Jamie Smith, James K. Smith. He's done some of his work on this that, you know, we have historically seen in the Western culture of Christianity that we are just uh, thinking machines. Mm-hmm. But we are deeply embodied, and as deeply embodied, we are in spirited flesh and mind and all that, and a very powerful gestalt. So our Christianity, as we have inherited it from some of the Reformers and others, has just taken all that out. And it's not just the Reformers. I mean, you know, as Weber said, the modern project it, it, it was a, a fueled by a Protestant understanding, but it, it's been the project of the of the Western world for a long time. Mm-hmm. So before we leave this topic, I'm curious. Pentecostalism is, of course, associated with miracle working and gifts of healing, and you know sometimes physical or at least experiential manifestations of the presence of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And and so if we're going to think of it in this transrational way where we want to square that kind of experiential life with what we know from science and the observation of our senses and evidence, how do those things go together in your experience? So I'll just, you know, just be frank, all the Pentecostals that almost all the Pentecostals I've known personally in my life, and, and especially as actually like this increases the more spiritual they get and the more focused on things like healing and physical manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit and whatnot, the more interested they are in that, the less interested they tend to be in confirming those experiences with normal kinds of evidence. And in fact, when asked to do so, they often view it or react as though it were some sort of movement against the Spirit. So trying to confirm that a miracle happened, for example, would be, for many of the Pentecostals I've known anyway, including former pastors, that would be like hmm. uh, evidence that you lack faith or something mm-hmm. like that. So um, so as someone who's driven by reason in the classical enlightenment sense to base your beliefs on the preponderance of the evidence, but also is open to, you know, this this truth that that is not all of us, that we're much, much bigger than that. Uh, how do we square those things with seeking the very specific manifestations of the gifts that Pentecostals have always been interested in. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that what some of us would call the primal faith of our movement, that it's not only in the Azusa revival, but in the mystics and back into the, you know, to the life of the, of the church throughout the his, history, is that the miracles and the gifts are less that use the word signs. Uh, those are somewhat byproducts of things. And those were things that would be evident in the life of someone filled with the Spirit. But the deeper evidence of that would have been a relationship with Christ that was just bound in the affections of a path. Let's use the word passion that my colleague used in his book, A Passion for the Kingdom, so to speak. And, you know, we we would we used to use the term, and many others still do, the fivefold or the fourfold gospel, Jesus as the 
Savior, Jesus as sanctifier, Jesus as the healer, Jesus as the baptizer, and Jesus as the coming king. Well, in any of that, you don't really hear the gifts being, except for the gift of healing, maybe. But it's a package deal, I guess is what I'm saying. And and then groups get, you know, there's always problems when you make one part the whole. And and then if you if you lack a good ecclesiology and a grounding in the deeper tradition of the church, you can get some real uh, Gnosticism and a lot of arrogance and pride. And I've seen that lately. And it's grievous because, you know, we are part of something uh, larger and therefore we are subject to one another. Questions about uh, our discernment or a miracle or and, and we're part of the human community and science is part of that. So I think that it, it's sort of an exclusivism that you should see in the maybe the church at Corinth that begins to puff up and pride and arrogance and not really the gospel. It becomes something perverted. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, you would then, I suppose, be you would welcome the attempt to actually establish, according to some kind of scientific metric, that a miracle happened in a community, and you wouldn't view that as somehow anti-Pentecostal or anything. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've really not encountered where people were resistant to that. For the most part, I've encountered people saying, well, let's just let's just see what the doctor's x-rays say. And hmm. a friend of mine, my, almost my closest friend, she had uh, colon cancer. And all of the scans and x-rays and colonoscopy said that she had uh, it pretty advanced. And so right before she went in for cancer, there was a lot of prayer for her healing. And she went, she went in for the surgery and then it wasn't there. So the physician, you know, he just, after the surgery, said, here's the x-ray. It's here. You see it. You see this mm-hmm. scan. You see all this MRI stuff. And, and I, I, did, I did biopsies on you. And it was in the lymph nodes when I did those biopsies. And mm-hmm. it's not there. And so it, she, um, she became really a good close friend to this physician, and he wrote up an article in the University of Tennessee Knoxville Health Health Magazine about mm-hmm. this experience. And he began to go to church after that, and <laughs> and they're really good friends. And and she just says to me, "I'm no better than anybody else, and I don't know why this happened to me, and I don't really deserve this, but I'm just grateful that I'm not." dealing with stage three or four colon cancer right now. It's amazing. And then yeah. there's that great mystery that I don't understand. You know, there are those who have those experiences, like my friend Sue, and then there are those who do not find that mm-hmm. healing, and they die with this. Mm-hmm. And, and I do not understand that at yep. all. And But yeah, that's, that's the mystery of it. Yep, and I think that right there is the best explanation is mystery. Mm-hmm. We, if we're talking about the supernatural and we're talking about the rational together, um, we have to get acquainted with and comfortable with mystery, even though it's really hard to get comfortable with it, isn't it? It's hard. I wonder, how, how would you define mystery? Either of you, I suppose, because uh, when I've seen philosophers use that word, 
what they often mean is unintelligibility and and reason wars against unintelligibility it, it's almost like a like a i don't know a presupposition of doing philosophy in the greek tradition that the world is intelligible and and to be confronted with mystery in the sense of no reality as it actually is is inaccessible to you just because of the kind of thing that you are that's like against the dna of philosophy so mm-hmm. like if if that's what you meant by mystery then then i would be torn like in my being and so mm-hmm. i'm really hoping that's not what you mean so so what does mystery mean in in the sense that Randy, do you want to go thing. ahead, and then I'll chime in on that. I, I mean, I wish you wouldn't have said that, Cheryl, because <laughs> any explanation I have of mystery is going to be in, inadequate of, compared to yours. But I will just say, in regard to this context, what you're talking about, Kyle, as far as a philosopher's concept and lack of comfort level with mystery, I would just say when we're talking about when we're talking about anything, a lot of things in the universe, but particularly the supernatural, we come to an end of our reason. And that's that should be a more comfortable place where the unexplainable um, is not abnormal and where you require faith that goes beyond reason of something that you can't prove. I'm not saying anything new to you, but I think this idea of our reason and being kind of ruled by that and then also certainty on the other side when we as people of faith, especially American evangelicals, love certainty. We turn faith into certainty. And so that's where I think there's a lot of areas where we would be do well to be more comfortable with mystery. And so I, I'd be completely comfortable with not being able to explain uh, an experience that I perceived was with God that to me and my person is as real as real gets. But there's no way I can prove it to you that I had this dream and that God spoke to me through it and altered the course of my life in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. or that a person had a word that she said was from the Holy Spirit that undid me in the most profound way. And it felt as real as being loved by my wife. Um, There's things that I've just, I think we need to get used to. Otherwise we are going to be what Cheryl talked about earlier, which is a, a faith tradition that's completely ruled by reason and our minds and live there and miss a whole, whole part of who we are as human beings, which is, which is where we find the limit to our reason. Hmm. Now you can give the real answer. <laughs> Randy, I think your definition's great. What I like what you said there about the end, that we come to the end of our own reason, and sometimes we forget the finiteness of our, our reason. And mystery, I think, is not something that is held by some people and kept secret from others as hmm. much as something that is ever-deepening and ever-widening, ever-expanding. So... Even scientists talk about the mystery of the universe and mm-hmm. the mystery of this and the mystery of that. And it's, it's something really beautiful and wonderful and almost like whets your appetite to know more about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I will say, Kyle, the mystery, like I wouldn't ever use that as an excuse not to dig into that experience to see if it was true. That would that that would seem unhealthy and immature. But I would say attaching the caveat that says if we can't prove it, it's not true, that's where I would say I can't I I don't think sure. that's a wise place to go. Yeah. But if if in our attempts and I'm not I'm not ascribing this to the Pentecostal tradition per se, but if in our attempts to understand a thing, we uncover evidence that the 
let's say, spiritual interpretation of it is mm-hmm. not supported by the evidence, then I would feel compelled to give up the spiritual interpretation. I mean, yes, with the caveat that spiritual is a really complex sure, word. Sure, 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 right? yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm using it because I can't think of a better one. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, <I laughs> the was, interpretation yeah. where God showed up and did this, mm-hmm. and that's the best explanation. I mean, again, I think God works in all sorts of ways, whether it's through medicine, doctors, wisdom, knowledge, Mm -hmm. miracles. So again, I wouldn't give it up and say that wasn't God moving. But yes, I would say if you find an explanation where this person started taking this medication, they didn't know it, and all of a sudden this happened, and oh my goodness, maybe it's not the transcendent miracle from God that we had no idea about. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that'd be stupid not to, I think. Cheryl, that conference that I met you at, it sticks in my memory because it was, well, it was the only Pentecostal I don't know anything academic that I'd ever been to. I didn't know that there was such a thing as a Pentecostal academic at that point. I I became a Pentecostal in college and then went to graduate school. And and I don't know if you remember this, but it was really, really odd to me. And I wonder if it was odd to you. During your keynote, there was what I can only call a a movement of the Holy Spirit. And everyone in the room Mm -hmm. began spontaneously weeping, Mm -hmm. speaking in tongues, including you. (laughs) Yeah. And it mm-hmm. went on like that for probably half an hour. Mm-hmm. It did. Uh, and this was at an no, academic that was unusual. You know? <laughs> we don't usually do that, you know, and that's so it much. It was but... sure unusual to me, and it really stuck in my brain. And one of the reasons I went to that conference was because a philosopher that I admired a lot, a guy named Merrill Westfall, was the keynote in the philosophy track or whatever. And he was in the room. He was in the back of the room, and I wondered the whole time, what is he, what is like his perception of this <laughs> Yeah, my paper was on a feminist, uh, Pentecostal feminist hermeneutic, uh, grieving, brooding, transforming the spirit, the Bible, and gender, and then it later was published. And then I've got a book coming out, co-edited with Lisa Stevenson, who's a graduate of Marquette, Hmm. on the same topic, which is just a compilation of essays by both younger and older women Pentecostal scholars trying to sort of bounce off of this hermeneutic that I developed, you know. Of And so I think what was so unusual about that session was that it tapped into some deep grief that the mm-hmm. Spirit brought to the surface in terms of the pathos in women's lives. And, you know, I went to that text of Tara in Judges 19. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was an event. It sure was. <laughs> wow. It was moving. Like, I brought a friend of mine who wasn't in any way affiliated with the conference. He just happened to live in the area, and he too was just like doubled over speaking in tongues. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. And there was one woman, um, she started, I think it's the whole, you know, I started speaking in tongues. And I mean, they asked me to pray, which might have been a mistake. And then <laughs> uh, this woman from Canada, she was on my left near the front, just started groaning. I don't know if you remember that, this wailing. Mm. And later she told me the next day, she said, you know, I never cry. And besides that, I'm Canadian. So <laughs> I said, well, that was a double thing there. Yeah. Wow. I think the spirit was uh, groaning that day. Mm. Wow. Cheryl, I, want, I would love to hear what's intrigued me. I've been intrigued for a while by this idea of feminist theology. I've been intrigued for a long time about this idea of liberation theology, 
when you attach a word, I know there's a lot of, I'm going to use the good word good in quotes, but good Bible-based Protestants who get really unhinged and anxious when you attach any word to theology that's not like, you know, the theology of, of God. But feminist theology, explain what you mean by feminist theology, what that means for me as a white male trying to listen and understand feminist theology. Well, you know, um, feminist theology is just an outgrowing of of good humanism in the sense of saying that women are fully human. And, you know, we can say that and sit around here tonight and talk about that as if that's just a, a no-brainer. But mm-hmm. in, in you know, the ancient world, if the, if the Greeks were sitting around talking about it, it would be a no-brainer that women were mm-hmm. not fully human, mm-hmm. you know, closer to the animals than, than men in some ways. So mm. uh, to be fully human is a radical statement. And, and over here in 2020, it, it doesn't seem that radical. But looking back, uh, even unto the mid of the 20th century in some ways, and even today in some countries of the world, to say that women are full humans is not fully appreciated with that. So that, for me, is a, a starting point in, in identifying feminism. I had a a young woman said to me this past week, I'm not, I'm, I'm uncomfortable maybe with the word feminist. I think I'm just going to call myself a humanist. And I said, well, I, I think I, I see where you are, but until women are, are accepted as fully human, I think I'm just going to keep mm-hmm. using that word, mm-hmm. feminist. Mm-hmm. And That reminds me a lot of um, the Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter exactly. uh, argument. Yeah. You know, like, until all Black Lives Matter... Mm-hmm. We got to say Black Lives Matter because, yeah. No, I mean that to me is my basic premise, and I actually stole that from you. I saw you tweet that one time uh, that mm-hmm. as a definition of feminism, and now I use it for all my intro classes when I introduce feminism as like a simple way to understand what it does and doesn't mean. It's very useful. So you're maybe the only, at least before I discovered you, I had never heard of such a thing as a feminist Pentecostal. <laughs> like mm. that, that didn't, that was not on my radar. And everyone I told uh, about that conference in the keynote that I heard, that was not on their radar either. So what's it like being a feminist Pentecostal? How do those perspectives inform each other for the work that you do? And I guess two parts of the question, how's your feminism received in the Pentecostal church and how's your Pentecostalism received in the feminist scholarly world? Well, uh, you know, back to the definition of Pentecostalism, my husband and I were in our breakfast conversation the other morning. He said, you know, I just think, Cheryl, that you and I are more first-generation Pentecostals in the um, beliefs and ideology that we have than fourth gen- or fifth-generation, current generation, so that the early Pentecostal movement was heavily criticized for being feminine. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a time when Billy Sunday and everybody was trying to masculinize Christianity and here are these Pentecostals and all these women and, and, the, and the reporters from the Los Angeles Times when they were reporting on the Azusa Street Revival, one of the things that they zeroed in on was the leadership of women and the predominance of women. So, our movement up until the mid-20s and 30s was pretty much a proto-feminist movement or incipiently, inherently, women were full partners in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And then 
as we became more evangelical and joined the NAE in 1942, we, you know, whenever the guys get together, what gets thrown under the bus? That's usually the women, mm-hmm. the minorities and the women. Mm-hmm. And so when we decided that we needed a good peer group and everybody hated us, especially the fundamentalist, they would not be part of the NAE if we would join. Anyway, that we became part of this sort of larger evangelical culture in the 40s and 50s. And if you think about what was happening in U.S. culture as a whole, post-World War II and getting women back into the home, we were not immune from that. And uh, we became more of, we became a movement less of the working poor, more middle class, uh, and our women were told that they were no longer these warriors in this kingdom of, you know, missionaries and other things that they would be good to be home homemakers. So all that 1950s, the number of women in our movement as full ministers just rapidly declined. So it's taken a while to get back up. And so I don't think that it is an oxymoron except who we are today. Mm-hmm. It's more of just... As I said in my earlier statement about what it was like to be a child growing up in that church I grew up in, they taught me how to be a feminist. It's incredible. And I don't think anyone, particularly in the North, would would believe you if you say, I was discipled by the Pentecostal church into having a feminist theology. That's incredible and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And also reminds me of how it seems like whenever any branch of the church becomes legitimized and becomes um, kind of gets a seat at the table with the big, powerful, important people, all of a sudden the marginalized people fall to the wayside. I think you see that probably when mm-hmm. Constantine brought the church into the full Roman Empire and said, this is the, the way now. And all of a sudden the marginalized starts falling away. And all of a sudden our picture of the gospel just gets tainted, doesn't it? All of a sudden it becomes this elitism that really isn't the gospel for all intents and purposes because it's controlled by the powerful. It sounds like maybe in many ways that's what happened to the Pentecostal movement in some ways. Yeah, I mean, the hunger for acceptance can, you know, when you come from a shame-based identity, when mm. you're called the last vomit of Satan and other things, you know, uh, then when somebody says that they'll let you come to the table, you want to dress up, clean up. There was one guy who became president of the NAE, Assembly of God, that the the NAE, I think, asked him if his wife would give up her ordination so that they would be more palatable for the movement, so to speak. So, yeah, we you, just what you're saying, when we get all cleaned up and get a seat at the table, the things that make us different, like the women, uh, the minorities, maybe some of the more overt manifestations. So we went more toward the Pentecostal light and less out of, we, you know, we have African roots and African spirituality there at Azusa Street. And, you know, a lot of the white Pentecostals want, wanted to just sort of take that out. And, hmm. and now, you know, a lot of evangelicalism is what we call Pentecostal light. Raise your hands, have this praise and worship thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We try. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you mentioned uh, earlier the hermeneutic that you developed. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you approach the Bible and how that's informed by 
the different strands of your perspective as a feminist and as a Pentecostal? Well, the paper that you heard, Kyle, was the mm -hmm. grieving, brooding, transforming. It was a sort of a Pentecostal feminist hermeneutic. And uh, in my opinion, the traditional feminist hermeneutics, as you move from the hermeneutic of suspicion into remembering and reconstruction, the missing thing there was grief. And there, there is a movement there when you read any text of Tara where the grief of the spirit over broken creation has to be not just a side part, but a real part of it in feminist hermeneutics, I think. And, and then what the brooding part for me is this whole image of the creator spirit brooding over chaos and in history toward justice and stirring up the waters and creating opportunities for transformation. Uh, so that is sort of my basic feminist hermeneutic. And But the book that I'm working on now, Reenchanting the Text, the Bible for a New Generation, is more of an ontology of Scripture, hmm. which is what, you know, I think hermeneutics is a secondary question. And kind of agree with John Webster that uh, ontology is the primary question. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. What is the Bible? You know, mm -hmm. then we talk about how do we read it and how do we interpret it, but what is it? Mm -hmm. And so I am um, developing this book that tries to take that question on in a, in a very sort of robust way of that. From my, from my opinion, uh, we have a disenchanted text. The modern Bible is a flat, disenchanted text that you try to... You, Nobody wants to read it if you, you know, you tell people to read it, to have a worldview or to, as George Barner says, uh, think like Jesus. It's like Jesus was Plato or something. <laughs> or put on your worldview glasses, <laughs> all that evangelical stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but for me, the ontology of Scripture comes out of what Webster would say, uh, the revelation of God, and the triune life, and it has to have a robust pneumatology and so the, for the primary ontological identity of Scripture is spirit, hyphenated word. And mm. so that for me, Scripture is, is a, it's a space as much as a text or a portal or an icon as much as words. And this gets back into where we were going to make Kyle nervous, right, in this ministry <laughs> thing. <laughs> this is, um, so that's what I'm working on. And... Man. I just think that we have a very disenchanted Bible today. Well, the world is disenchanted. Man. Sign me up. I'm ready for that book. <laughs> um, Cheryl, we didn't tell you we were going to ask this, but can you, can you explain for, for us and for our listeners your idea, your concept of the feminine divine and where, the, where femininity fits into the divine life? Yeah, you know, Protestantism just has not only had it become rational, but just totally masculine in the sense that, you know, we did away with any sense of Mary or venerating Mary. And looking back in the, say, the Old Testament and the Jewish tradition, there's so many good feminine elements there of, of wisdom, personification of wisdom in Proverbs 8 and 9, which is very feminized, very much a feminine voice speaking there. Uh, Shabbat is uh, the Sabbath, which is uh, feminine. And so you have Queen Sabbath, you have Lady Wisdom, 
And you have Shekinah that developed in the Talmud, which is the willed presence of God. And that was a feminine representation of God. And Isn't the, the Ruach? Yeah, the, oh yeah, basic, basic, yeah, that very basic understanding of the Ruach being the uh, a feminine term there. You know, for spirit, you had Numa, and then it, it, it sort of became, in the Latin and other ways, it became neuter, but then masculine. So it went sort of more from feminine to neuter to masculine, and ancient Syriac Christianity would have rich images of referring to the Holy Spirit as a mother, spread your wings over our troubled times, was mm-hmm. one of the prayers. And we have lost a lot of that in our Romanized, Westernized, very highly masculine world. And mm-hmm. so it's just hard-pressed to find any any glimmer of light for any feminine sense of of the world of time, masculine time, one over. I got a whole section in my book on midlife and menopause about how masculine time won out over feminine time, solar time over lunar time. So it's just hard in our present time to find the feminine. And one of the ways I like to do that in the Trinity is not, you can, you know, referring to the spirit in feminine form is fine. I do that too. But I like what Anne Bedford Ulanoff has done in the sort of psychoanalytical stuff that she's done. And then I tag that into Miroslav Volf's work on the Trinity as the I and the not I, or the one and the plural. And if we see the masculine as the I, that is sort of the individuation, the transcendence of God. Mm-hmm. If we see the feminine in God as the unity of God, the we of God, let us make humankind. It is the eminence of God, so that God has both masculine and feminine characteristics of the eminent, the transcendent, and a radically eminent feminist God. I just get all suffocating in that body of, you know, the universe is the body of God. and I'm, It's like when you get into the extreme feminist understanding of God, and goddess stuff, I feel like I'm just in this, God is my body, and where does God end? And my, you know, it's just too mm-hmm. radically imminent. But the radically transcendence, transcendence of God is problematic, and that's where most Protestant evangelicals are, is that it's a highly Romanized God, more like a Roman God mm-hmm. than the Hebraic God. Mm-hmm. So we, we've got a lot of work to do to be comfortable with saying God is masculine and feminine. God is not man or God is not woman. Mm-hmm. God is not male. God is not female. But God is masculine. God is feminine. Mm-hmm. And, and if you were to say to a woman, if you were to ask her, do you believe you're made in the image of God? She would say, yeah. But deep down, she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Really, she doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you... That picture of you talking about the ancient Syriac Christians saying, you know, Divine Mother, the Spirit, would you cover us with your wings in these troubling times? As soon as you said that, I was like, I got chills and thought, that's what we're missing right now, is mm-hmm. church leaders are wrangling for power and, you know, cozying up to political parties and, and people, and we're hollering at each other because of masks, and there's 
guys who formed a militia to try to kidnap and execute a governor, and there's all this chaos. And maybe what we're missing is that divine feminine that says, Divine Mother, would you cover us in your wings in these troubling times? That sounds needed right now. Oh, very much needed. I'm in an ecumenical prayer service associated out of the National Cathedral on the day before the election. And I, I had to contribute about a 30-second prayer, and I included those words in mm. that prayer mm. for our wow. nation. And yeah, and you know, you talk about the militias, and we talk about this, the new book that Kristen DeMoos has on Jesus mm-hmm. and John Wayne, mm-hmm. and how evangelicalism has just tried to go more and more hyper-masculine each generation, trying to outdo the other to, to where Trump is not an aberration, but he is the fulfillment mm-hmm. of biblical manhood, so to speak. So that's a deadly and dangerous place to be. Yep, yep. So going, you know, talking, Trump is kind of the opposite of what I'm going to ask you about now, which is this idea that you've coined benevolent patriarchy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Benevolent patriarchy. Could you describe that for us, Cheryl? Yeah, benevolent patriarchy. You know, there's hardcore patriarchy. That's the uh, what you see in the Middle East in some countries today, but mm. what was part of uh, the era in which Scripture was written. And, you know, that's where it is the root. You know, patriarchy just literally means the rule of man. And the paterfamilias, the household ruler. So that's more of the women are chattel, they're owned, they have no will of their own, they're not, they're sort of subhuman. You see, you see that in some forms today. But benevolent patriarchy, I think, is what you see in the Western world, and evangelicalism is kind of sort of the champion of that. Is what is it, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and mm-hmm. uh, John Piper and Wade Grudem and all. It's like, you lovingly lead, sort of. Mm-hmm. But then you have all these scandals, and which kind of still flow out of the patriarchy. But instead of saying patriarchy's the problem, they'll just say, well, we're not kind enough or we're not loving enough. So benevolent patriarchy is, I think, the context of most traditional conservative evangelicalism. So when we think about patriarchy or when we think about misogyny in the church, we're thinking more probably about the extremes, about not letting your wife wear makeup or have this long skirt on, or we think in these antiquated terms, but you're saying, no, patriarchy exists, even if it comes with a smile and some, you know, and some compassion and love, it's still patriarchy, right? Yeah. And in my book, I have a whole section on that, in which I talk about what it's like to live in benevolent patriarchy. And, you know, I I say that I've spent my whole adult life working in the context of benevolent patriarchy. So I know it quite well. Mm-hmm. And most evangelical women know it well. And, you know, I think the whole image there of what they would call God's design for women mm-hmm. to be under the leadership of men. And women are safer under the protection of men. And in benevolent patriarchy, the type of woman that they call for is the, what I call, you know, you move from the nice girl to the good woman. Mm-hmm. And benevolent patriarchs love good women. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're mm-hmm. the women. You know, I give a list in my book of good women who work behind the scenes to make things happen, good women who stand behind their men, good women who don't ask too many questions. 
uh, good women who were hardworking, God-fearing, and dispensable, of all things dispensable. They're the smiling assistants. They work to make themselves thin, unseen, and unheard. And they believe that their value comes from the men they serve and is derived out of that. And most women in evangelical culture, they believe that God is the great benevolent patriarch and God Mm. expects all of these things. God expects them to be the good woman. And so they have these spiritual holding containers using Richard Rohr language. Mm. So the spiritual holding containers for women in most evangelical churches is you never outgrow them. You never, you, you, you're in it at 25. And if Beth Moore wants to get out of it a bit at 59, you know, all hell breaks loose because (laughs) that, that holding container, that space that that's given to you for the good woman, you know, is you don't get to transverse out of it. So in this book that I did seven transforming gifts of menopause and that for women at midlife, I have a whole chapter on the gift of spiritual freedom and try to help women have the courage and get permission to get out of those holding containers. Mm -hmm. As you talk about that, Cheryl, I'm a little bit overwhelmed in thinking, putting myself into that world. How scary would that be to think about breaking out of that container, right? When your whole world has been built by that inside of that container and you're probably your family lives in that container. And the minute you try to get out of it, you're going to be seen as a heretic. You're going to be seen as, you know, a liberal, crazy person who doesn't fill in the blank. That just sounds terrifying to think about getting out of, even though it feels even more terrifying and suffocating to stay inside of. That's a really, really hard place. It's a hard place because there's a lot of rewards by staying to stay inside. Mm-hmm. And because the good women are really, you know, kind of rewarded. and But on the other hand, you know that you can only make yourself so small without dying. And mm. so getting out of them, though, you know, the, as you were saying very aptly, they're the guardians of the holding containers. There's the ideology that's behind it. And then they throw scripture in and doses about God's God's design, God's, you know, place, God's place, God's purpose. And boy, you know, just moving out of it can, is a frightening experience. But I've seen a lot of women do it lately. I think one of the maybe byproducts of of, in a redemptive way of the Trump era and other things, and the scandals of sexual abuse and things is that women are getting out of those holding containers. They're finding them that they're more toxic than they first thought. And Therefore, they're willing to maybe pay a price, more mm-hmm. so than our mothers were maybe to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cheryl, when, when George Floyd was murdered and this Black Lives Matter movement exploded, you know, I've talked about race as a pastor for a long, long time. But the first thing, the first and the only thing that I wanted to do was just listen to my Black pastor friends and say, I'll go where you go. I'll, I'll follow your lead. And I'm still convinced that was the right thing to do. And I'm sensing the same necessity here as, as, we, as we talk of saying men, particularly white American men, don't have the capacity to understand what an experience would be like being a woman in the church, particularly the evangelical church in America in the last 70 years, say. So seeing that the more and more I read my Bible with women present, the more I'm realizing 
this must have sucked to read and grow up in with this extremely masculinized, you know, patriarchal world that the Bible was created and written in. So we're part of a faith tradition that was formed and originated in an extremely patriarchal world. Our God is seen as masculine, and if you talk about God as feminine, you're seen as a heretic in many of these circles. We give God masculine pronouns over and over again. The Bible was written primarily by men. Daughters aren't written about in scriptures. Most of the time you hear about women in the scriptures, it's who they're told to submit to or what they've done wrong, right? I mean, there's all these things, and I'm, I'm fairly convinced we men don't get it. It's really hard for us to get what it would be like to be formed in a faith tradition that doesn't make much room for you, and a God that you can't identify with in many ways because of your gender. So how do these realities shape girls and women in the church? How do they shape boys and men in the church? What's your perception on this world that I'm speaking to that most of us in the church, especially those in power in the church, just don't realize, have no idea about? Yeah, it's kind of like the air we breathe and the water we drink, and uh, it's sort of a unacknowledged sometimes, but yet there. And I think for men, as you were saying, it's just natural. God is like you, and and they're heroes of men in the Bible, and they all have names for the most part, and on and on. Women develop what I call the skill of insertion. Hmm. You know, growing up, we sang uh, Father Abraham had many sons. Mm-hmm. A little girl standing there, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, and she'll go, me too. Mm-hmm. And I am one of them, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll hear the pastor say, you know, uh, they'll read a scripture that says, and all men, and this man, and, and, and then a woman has to do this. She has to go, that means me too. So it's a constant skill that you develop of insertion. But then if you get weary of insertion, what may happen is that you give up and you just say, it's a man's world and I'm tired of inserting and it must mean that I'm on the outside of this tradition. That's when you can find women leaving the church and the tradition because mm-hmm. they're just weary. It takes a lot of work to mm-hmm. remain in that context. And there are women who may just have learned to be part of that culture and say, yeah, that I know all that means me too, but I'm just happy that men are the, you know, that the language is all male and the characters are all male. They, they have acclimated to it. Mm -hmm. So how do we then, you know, I'm a church leader and I'm interested in knowing how do we do better? How do, how do we, how do we, the church, and I'm not just saying how do we men in the church, but how do we in the church, how do we do better, Cheryl? Yeah. Well, I have a former student, uh, grad of the seminary, pastors in Pennsylvania, a very wonderful Digers church. And he was doing a series recently on the women in David's life. And he, he, he gets with his staff, which is women, men, black, white. But he called me and he said, I'm going to be preaching about tomorrow. What do you see in that passage? And we had a long talk about that. You know, that it's just a horrific, horrific passage in terms of the role of women in David's life and that he loved his son, the rapist, mm-hmm. more than he did his daughter who was raped. And mm-hmm. you got to come to grips with that. And he's helping a congregation come to grips with the trauma in, the, in that. And I find that very rare because normally the preaching is from the standpoint of David, not Tamar. Mm. And uh, that um, 
women maybe can help you find the back door of a text, like a, hmm. the, there's the servant's door, there's the back door, there's the hidden doors, the trap doors. There are the, the women standing in the room when Lot is willing to throw out his daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine being a woman in that room that night. So, yeah, I, I think that just asking women to help you interpret the text is helpful. Because mm-hmm. you, you, you can see it, but then I think they have a particular angle maybe that certain women would. Others would not because they have not been aware that they have permission to, to go there. Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Storyhill BKC for their support. Storyhill BKC is a full menu restaurant, and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Storyhill BKC is a full service liquor store featuring growlers of tap available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit StoryHillBKC.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, you'll thank yourself for visiting Storyhill BKC. And if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's StoryHillBKC.com. So one of your areas of research is spiritual renewal or spiritual transformation. I'm not sure how you put it. I think it's maybe in part of your professorship title. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's something that, you know, the Pentecostals that I was formed under talked a lot about. And I've never quite been able to understand, just for myself, the difference between spiritual transformation as a Christian and what an ethicist would just call moral development or the progress towards virtue. Um, and so as, as a Christian who wants to say there's something distinctive that Jesus can offer you or the Holy Spirit can offer you over what you could get from studying Kant, say, what is, what is the distinction in your mind between spiritual transformation or renewal and just straightforward becoming a good person. Yeah, you know, I years ago I did a lot of dialoguing with Lawrence Colbert and that whole yeah. understanding of moral reasoning and moral development. Yeah. And the way I see it is that the spiritual transformation we undergo very much colors our moral reasoning. So I'll give you an illustration. My mother-in-law never went past the 10th grade. And in terms of moral reasoning, she did not do a lot of formal operational thinking. Her thoughts were more in the interpersonal. I'll Mm. be a good person and the golden rule and we'll all love one another. But it was hard to get her to talk about systems of like justice, racism, Mm-hmm. Etc. But I think she was the most moral person I knew. And why did I, you know, I see that is because I think she was a woman of deep mystical prayer. I mean, she prayed hours a day in the presence of God, and she was a woman of suffering. Uh, she would pray for people to be healed, and in the mystery of God, she would be, she would not be healed. Great suffering. It's, you know, that deep mystery she lived in suffering. So if I were to want to have a really good conversation with her about the higher good or something, it it would fall flat. And so it, it would have to keep it on the interpersonal level. 
but she had a what Craig Dykstra would call the capacity for the moral imagination. And the imagination is that part of us that's beyond reason in some ways. It's that part of us that can see possibilities that we can't explain. Or Alfred North Whitehead is the ability to prehend the good. Mm, So she could prehend the good better than anybody I knew. (laughs) And I would say to someone and my students, I would say, if people a lot of times were dying and they said, you know, you can only have one person here to pray for you, they would call for my mother-in-law. And in great times of crises, she was always the one that we called. And therefore, you know, you can take Kant and shove it in terms of that. It's like, um, it was frustrating at times because she didn't understand maybe why, uh, let's talk about Palestinian issues or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. justice issues. But once she saw that there was a moral course that maybe the spirit would reveal to her about it, she became she became more than she could describe that in terms of Craig's Dykstra's work. You know, she became capacitated beyond herself. Mm. And that's why I think the spiritual transformation is important. On the other hand, I know that it handicaps you if you cannot do good moral reasoning. And I see that everywhere today. Good church mothers sharing Russian memes, hmm. you know, on Facebook. And they they are not reasoning it out. And the Pentecostal tradition is almost getting worse in its anti-intellectualism and dichotomizing intellect versus spirit. And it's not an inspirited intellect, you know. So yeah. we are more likely than any group right now to be hoodwinked by conspiracy theories and the low level of education as a whole in our, in our movement. So I believe that another problem is not all these people are as capacitated spiritually as my mother-in-law was. They're more capacitated by Fox News. Mm-hmm. And so their deficit on both sides, their deficit on moral reasoning skills, higher level critical thinking, dialectical thinking, but they're also deficit in spiritual depth and, mm-hmm. and, and spiritual wisdom. And so they're not capacitated on either side. That is, that's a, where we are right now. That's giving me a lot of grief, keeping me up at night. My husband and I talk about this. Is that you know who's catechizing? Who yeah. there's there's a lack of critical reasoning, but there's also a lack of spiritual depth, and those two mm-hmm. things are a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hate yeah. you know ending on that down. <laughs> well, I've got just two questions on on your most recent book, Cheryl. You published your new book called Seven Transforming Gifts of Menopause," mm-hmm. which I will tell you is the first time in my life as a man that I've ever been a little bit jealous of the menopause process that women experience. Because you do this amazing job of describing this transformational process, which is menopause, but also this coming coming into just new spaces as a woman in this book. So can you tell us a little bit about what the book is and where it came from? 
Yeah, you know, my own journey, a lot of books kind of begin there, but then in also looking at women's studies and women's development, uh, feminist work, and, and seeing that women at midlife, I think, are given uh, sort of this built-in biological opportunity to remake their life in the second half of life and to get out, like we were just talking, go, go beyond the spiritual holding containers, find a renewed vision for life, the second half of life being uh, somewhat different and more, more expansive than the first half of life, uh, that women can actually not just age and be you know older versions of their younger self, but they can mm. actually mature and become wise elders, and they can they can become the leaders in in society and in churches. And if you look at the women who years ago would start running for Congress, it was uh, women who were in that period of life. Hmm. You've called it kind of a falling upward for women, mm-hmm. which is really fun. Can you describe for us the first half of life for for a woman, and then the second half of life, that relationship there? Yeah, I think. Uh, kind of dialoguing with Roar there. The first half of life, he, he, I think, has worked so much with men. And I listened to something that he, some lectures he gave years ago, uh, where he said that, you know, for men, the first half of life is ascent. And then the second half of life is learning to descend. Well, let me go back to what I said about the I. For, for men, individuation and the I is a big deal of the first part of life identity, vocation, work. And then, as Rohr said, then the second part of life is more of a humbling and experience of relationships. Uh, He says, you know, in some cultures, men are humbled by initiation rites, but we don't have any of those things. For women, and he kind of just lightly touched on it, was that for women, the second half of life is ascent. And they, their first half of life it's what I call the relational self. Well, Carol Gilligan and others have, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, not, I'm the one calling it, but women have been defined as the we or the relational self that develops at puberty, this sort of drugged estrogen that makes her want to marry, have babies, give up her college and put her husband through school and everything. <laughs> she lets things go. It's all for the sake of relationship and She's just drugged. She's got all this hormone of progesterone and estrogen coursing through her body, and she has her rose-colored glasses on. And and then at perimenopause, all that hormonal balance starts shifting and dissipates, and there's a really kind of rocky ride. And parts of the brain of memory and anger are actually activated during that time. Wow. And a woman's rose-colored glasses come off, and she said, you mean I... I gave up college for you. <laughs> I must have been a fool for doing that. You know, like, what was I thinking? So what I try to do is help women embrace that relational self that at that time of your life, that was really good and never give away the relational self, mm. the we. But the second half of life is more of the ascent of who am I, the I, and so one of the gifts of menopause I, I call the authentic self. And women need to, what Harriet Lerner calls, re-self. They have given bits and pieces of their self away to what she says they are, by midlife, completely depleted selves. 
so reselfing is important. But society, let's go back to the traditional churches. Um, they make that sound selfish, and they expect to keep being this relational self and keep smiling. And so what happens is a lot of the anger and other things get sublimated in women, and they develop all types of autoimmune disease. And, you know, anger never dies. It, it just gets submerged sometimes, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, if it's buried mm-hmm. alive, it stays alive. So hmm. there is, a, you know, for me, I, I want to help, help women see anger as a, as a gift and how to become competent in using anger. Not manage anger, but become competent in it. Hmm. Become a competent, individuated self while keeping the re- relational self. Find a renewed vision. And then the last chapter is the gift of the dragon. And if, you know, that's the, if a woman makes it to that last chapter, whew, there's, go get the <laughs> dragon tattoo. I've known some women who make it there and go get a dragon tattoo. So <laughs> Love it. Love it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining that there's a bunch of young moms listening right now, listening to you talk about that period of life that they're in, and they're feeling so hopeful, mm-hmm. hopefully, mm-hmm. resonating with what you're saying, and finding meaning in, what, in where they are right now, because that's, what they're, that's their vocation, but feeling so hopeful that there's more for me than this. Yeah. And then I bet there's a lot of middle-aged women who are listening, thinking... I've never thought about this. I've never seen this potential here in the second half of my life. Like you said, you kind of, so many women, I, I can see it, see themselves as just an aging version of their, their younger self. And man, there's so much more there. So I'm, I would love not only our female listeners, but our male listeners to read this book as well, to be able to understand and empower the woman in your life and to be able to to see where they are and to speak to where they are, call them out and call them into more. So beautiful. Yeah, I have a friend who I gave the copy to for his wife. And he said, because she's turning 50, and he said, oh, no, she's not getting it until I finish it. And so he <laughs> read the book and he was texting me things, you know, sometimes all caps. And so finally, you know, he gave it to his wife and and, and he said, you know, now we can talk about it. I, you read this, I, and I've read it. And I think that's a really odd way, but yet a good thing. I mean, he wanted to know what what I was saying. And after talking with him about the book, he, he resonated with that. And I appreciated it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, uh, we're at the end of our time here. So is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners where they can find you online or what you're currently doing if they want to keep up with the book that you're working on now? Yeah, I have the website, uh, you know, CherylBJohns.com. And I've got some things there. And every now and then I'll put a little blog post out, but that's where they can find me. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending the Thank evening you. with us, Cheryl. So wonderful. It's wonderful for me. I just I could go on and on. So thanks for the opportunity. Oh, we could too. Maybe after the next book comes out, we'll have you on again. That sounds really exciting. Oh yeah, yeah it's got to come out. Editor is uh, not happy. <laughs> <laughs> when can we? Isn't expect that, that their job? I feel, feel like that's part of the job description of an editor. Yeah, I haven't even they, opened the last email. So they know what they're getting. Into. Yeah, it's got to get. Actually, it was. Um, the book that Reenchanting the Text, I started on it before the menopause book. And when I was talking to my editor I, about not getting the reenchanting to him, I said, Well, I can't because I'm doing the menopause book. So he published that, I think, just to get it out of the way so I would do the <laughs> Fun. <laughs>
Thanks for spending this time with us. We really hope that you're enjoying these conversations as much as we are. And if you are, help us get the word out. Before you close your podcast app, leave a rating or a review. That helps new listeners find us, maybe for the first time. If you'd like to share the episode you just heard with a friend or a family member, you can find those links on our social media pages. You can also find us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been A Pastor and a Philosopher. Walk into a bar. Thank you.